I don't think I'd ever heard the word vision or <laughs> I'd never heard words like targets. Yeah. You know, we just did. We yeah. just said, hey, wouldn't it be good if, okay, we'll do it. You, you just kind of did things. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Lucy. Hello, Lucy. Hello, David. <laughs> Most people in my life know me as Dave. It's always a bit surreal when people reply with David. My dad's friend used David to me and that was surreal, but you're from the sphere of my life that is David, so it's normal. I think I've only known you as David. That's right. I make that kind of distinction between work and, and, and not work. The first question that I ask people is, how do you know me? Well, I know you from work. Um... <laughs> I worked for Enfield Library Service and I'm not sure when you came to work there. I'm guessing about 10 years ago. Yeah, it's like getting, I think it might be seven or something. I don't know, the years they've, they got, they've got to that stage where I can't, I can't easily track it down. In I became my mind. aware of you because you'd started doing the baby rhyme time or the under five story session at Oakwood Library, and people were saying to me, "Have you come across David Pickering? He's really good at telling <laughs> stories." And because I was head of children's services in Enfield, you know, obviously I kept my ears out for who was interested in doing children's work. So, you know word reached me that you were somebody <laughs> and it was quite unusual because it's really unusual to have a young man who's interested in in reading stories to children or telling stories to children so I was absolutely delighted when I finally got to meet you David oh that's and good of course after that we worked together quite a lot and you came to work in the team that I'd set up which yeah. was early years library outreach you kind of created that team the team I'm working in now yeah I did yes I did create it it sprung from a service that we set up in Edmonton area which was the setting up of the Shore Start services we set up a number of very specialist activities for naught to fives which was one of those government funding streams that came about and that was successful enough for the government to want to put more money into that kind of work and so they expanded the early shore start to something as you now know is known as children's centres yeah. and they replicated that model of holistic service for children and their families children naught to five yeah. and their families I don't think you were the first person that we recruited but no it was second wave like I definitely second, second wave. wave yes because there were three waves of funding and um, as the children's centers rolled out through Enfield the team expanded yes. and we are we represent the library in the children's center you do indeed yeah. well I mean really your remit is to provide those kind of activities that promote literacy mm -hmm. and encourage children to well very young children to to speak and older children to, to start to learn to love books and, yeah. and to read. Many studies have proved that the earlier children are exposed to books, the greater their opportunities will be in later life, Absolutely. which is something that I'm very pleased to be a part mm. of. Absolutely. The second question that I ask everybody is, what do you do now? Well, I left Enfield Library Service at the end of September. Restructuring of the service meant that the post that I would have been in was no longer going to be there so I took the opportunity to leave and to take early retirement and yeah. um, so now I'm looking at spending my life in a very different sort of way a kind of probably a higher quality of life for me because I've worked 
kind of long and hard for about 35 years so I'm kind of looking forward to doing some things that I really enjoy doing so going to kind of lots of galleries and museums, masses of exercise classes and I'm also studying to, um, at the moment I'm studying for a counselling certificate with a view to whether I carry on doing a, a diploma next year. Yeah I mean you've got the time to decide now I mean you say that's nice that's a nice position to be in. So at your leaving do you gave a very I thought very moving goodbye speech made me cry actually which I wasn't expecting but was pleased and well not pleased about but I was you know I welcomed that emotional response let's say but I wasn't pleased to see you go certainly not in that speech you kind of you went through your career trajectory those 35 years Mm. and it seemed to me quite an amazing sort of story kind of an example of the changes maybe within our, our society the emphasis the values that we we put on libraries and uh, on learning and uh, children's services as well so I wanted to kind of unpick that within this conversation so when did you first start working for the library I left university in 1975 summer of 1975 um, with a history degree with very little idea of what I wanted to do I think I sort of toddled along to the careers office in the you know the, the last month or so of university with very little idea of what you do with a history degree other than probably teaching or social work you know the only kind of careers that I I think I was aware of and I had a vague idea that I wanted to go into publishing because I liked books and really pathetic and they said oh it's quite hard getting into publishing (laughs) so very I was very easily and quickly put off (laughs) and they said what about libraries dear Um, I've never thought about working in a library Um, and they said well you go back to college you do another year of studying and um, that really appeals to me you know, I, having known nothing other than studying, having gone straight from school to university, I couldn't think of anything except to go back to further study. So yeah. I sort of said, yeah, okay, I'll you know, give that a whirl. So I really came into the profession with very little knowledge or understanding of what it would involve, other than it was going to be about books, which I knew about, and it involved further study. So I have to say, I wasn't somebody that was particularly driven by you know, a strong desire. I'd always used libraries, or at least I'd used libraries as a child I can't say I'd honestly used libraries a great deal as a you know as I grew up but you didn't hadn't always wanted to learn the Dewey Decimal System <laughs> God, no. I mean obviously one used the library at university you had to you couldn't possibly you know yeah. achieve a university education without using the library in those days because there, there was no, no other alternative yeah. no I, I and, and I suppose if I thought if I was going to go into libraries I probably thought I'd go into academic libraries I had really no thought of public libraries at all but when I came came out in 75, it was so easy to get work at that time. We were a very lucky generation. I think I wrote a couple of letters to, you know, some local authorities, because I, I, you know, obviously I did a little bit of research, I knew you had to get some work experience, at least a year's work, and then you go back to library school and, you know, and then your career takes off. And I think I, I know I got a, an offer of a job in Richmond, but I really wanted to work in Camden, which is where I was living, and, and I loved I loved Camden, which seemed like the centre of the universe as far as I was concerned at that time. And I was upset that I didn't hear from Camden, and of course, as it transpired, they had written to me asking me to go along for an interview, and I hadn't received the letter. So I'd rung them to find out 
what was happening and they said oh I'm very sorry but you've missed the interviews we had the interviews yesterday <laughs> these were for trainee librarians so it was more than just work experience it was getting onto a, a proper training course but they said oh well never mind come along come along anyway come and meet the directors so I did and I you know had a very informal interview and they just said yeah we'll well we had you know we have appointed but we'll we'll add you to We'll wow. add you to the trainee course, which of course would just never happen now. Yeah. You know, it would be impossible to imagine that kind of informality. I was interviewed by the Director of Libraries and Arts and his deputy. And again, that would never happen now, you know, at that kind of level. Yeah. And they were just so lovely. The whole kind of management at that time, I can only describe as sort of benign. It, it was very hierarchical in that... The, you know, the very senior managers were, were quite godlike to the library assistants, but in a very benign way. Okay. You know, they were kind of kindly, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I, I can see what you mean. Um, you kind of called them Mr and Mrs at that time. Yeah. Um, you know, Mr Maidment was the, was the chief and Mr Gregory was, and Mr Cole were the two deputies. And the more senior managers, you know, again, you called them, you know, Mrs Ramsey who's sort of like the area manager for the North. Again, you know, you can't imagine people being that deferential in today's yeah, world. But at the same time, actually, it was it, it was a kinder and just easier environment to sort of, you know, get work experience where you could really do what you wanted to do. It sounds, yeah, it sounds very desirable to me now. When you've completed that training scheme... What was the first kind of post position? Okay, well, in I was very lucky because Camden offered this trainee. Uh, we were we were graduate trainees. I think we were. I think I was probably about third or fourth year of this graduate trainee course. It was still quite unusual in those days to have university graduates coming into librarianship, and they were trying to encourage that. We started to move towards an all graduate profession mm-hmm. at, around that time. So I had a year where. I was on this very structured trainee year where I worked in, I think it was four different libraries and four different areas of the service. So I started in a small branch library, then moved on to Hoban Reference Library, which was one of the biggest reference libraries in the country, and specialised in law and business information. It was a really tough environment. Um, then I moved to Swiss Cottage Library for lending experience, adult lending experience, and then I finished with Swiss Cottage Children's Library for children's experience. Right. And it was when I got to Swiss Cottage Children's that I realised what I wanted to do. Because when I went into Camden, I actually thought I wanted to do local history because I... You did history. history I knew nothing about children's books, nothing about children's librarianship. It was probably the furthest from my mind. But as soon as I started working in Swiss Cottage Children's, I, you know, I, I knew what I wanted to do. It was just a wonderful environment. I wanted to read all the books that were in that library, and I pretty much, you know, did read my way through the library. We could in those days. We were so well-staffed that we we really could spend a lot of our time reading the books. It was almost part of our duties to do so. We had children coming in from every school in the area, so we had kind of a throughput of class visits. So, you know, we were just seeing hundreds of children every day. Wow. It was an incredibly well-used library. I mean, I cannot describe how busy Swiss Cottage Library uh, was. And it, it just was a, a fantastic place to work. 
and, and Swiss Cottage was a wonderful place to work. You know, it's got Hampstead Theatre right next door to it. It's got the you know, leisure centre. It's a really buzzy place. And I live five minutes away. So it was just a great place to sort of live and work. Very exciting. Sounds it. It sounds really, yeah. Sounds like I'd love to work in a, a situation like that. Mm. Then I went to library school. And when I came back from library school, I was lucky because I had a guaranteed job at the end of it, at least six months. The six months was... I had to work six months in Camden, but I had a permanent job. It's just that I, yeah. you know, I had to, I had to honour six months in Camden. Yeah. And as soon as I came back, I think fairly soon after that, um, that what what they would do is once you'd sort of learnt the skills of being a children's librarian, yeah. then they trusted you with a branch of your own. So I I went from there to Kentish Town Library as my first as my own first children's library branch. Okay, so you'd, you'd done a year and then you were managing a branch after that year? Well, not managing the branch, oh, you managing the children's... Children's oh, in gosh, the... Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, wow. Yeah, no, no, no. Okay, so you're, you're managing the children's in the branch. That yeah. makes more sense, yeah. You have to imagine that in, in those days, the, the numbers of staff were infinitely greater than the numbers of staff in libraries today. Yeah. So in every library, no matter how big or small in Camden, there was a branch librarian a deputy branch librarian. Sometimes a deputy branch librarian was also the children's librarian. Sometimes there was a third, you know, children's librarian. Sometimes there was a fourth librarian. Wow. <laughs> and then there were library assistants. Yeah, I mean, listeners won't know how unusual this, this sounds to me because they don't necessarily know the qualifications of everybody that they see in their branches when they go into their libraries, but this is very unusual now. Um, yeah. And in fact, in Camden, we not only had a children's librarian in every branch, we also had a pool of what were called peripatetic children's librarians who assisted the children's librarian. Maybe did three days in one library and two days in another library, and they did nothing but children's work. At Kentish Town Library, I was the children's librarian, and then in addition I had this peripatetic who came to help me three days a week, and I had a library assistant to assist. So we... We, we did nothing but children's work. I never set foot outside of the children's library. It was an exceptionally good service. We provided visits for all the local schools. I can still remember the names of all the schools. Every single class came from infants to year what we now call year six in every single school. And when I say a visit, it would have been, you know, a fully structured visit, a story, uh, maybe a library quiz, showing children around the library, doing some activities with them, borrowing books. I mean, just about every child would have been a member of the library in Mm. that area because they would have come with their school. And in areas like Kentish Town, Regent's Park, Camden Town, which were extremely poor areas in the 70s they hadn't really started to be gentrified at that time I'm talking about really families where children would never have come to the library if they hadn't come with their school Mm. and I can remember some really poor children children whose clothes weren't washed children who, who you know frankly you know smelled as though they rarely being washed themselves mm-hmm. and they were they loved coming to the library I bet I mean I think some of the areas that I work in now there's a similar level perhaps although I think 
poverty is different these days. I mm-hmm. talked to my mum about this because she used to work in an adventure playground scheme in London around the same time that you were, and uh, it sounds it sounds much more kind of Dickensian the the image of, of poverty then kind of compared to now. Everybody's got a trainers. Mm-hmm. They've got, everyone's got trainers and and and, yeah. and stuff. You know, yeah. they've got more stuff, but yeah. they still don't have the, any opportunities. Perhaps, I guess. I think. I mean, obviously, it's the one or two that stick out in your memory that kind of you know. I think provide you with this kind of image of what it was like. I mean, they probably weren't the norm. They probably were the exception. But yeah, but absolutely, the image is very stark. I mean, I do just remember this one. This one boy who was obsessed with Lord of the Rings. He. He loved this book so much. He'd read it over and over and over again. He was he came from a very, very, very poor family. I think the family, you know, the father was very abusive, he was constantly drunk and in the pub. And the and the father actually for, you know, said said to the child that he, he you know, he'd kill the kid if he came to the library because he didn't want any responsibility. He didn't want, you know, the son doing anything that involved him in anything that could give him a liability. Yeah. He said, Don't you know, I only go to that library and this this kid who was about 14 used to come in every single day and he it was his haven it was absolutely his haven and when I started there the outgoing children's librarian told me about him and he was he was just the most delightful boy who just came to the library to get away from this really abusive family and as I say he was he was the one whose clothes were really you know unwashed unkempt you know, falling apart. Uh, I'd never seen anything like that. Mm. But he was somebody that was desperate to better himself and desperate to get away from his, you know, from his environment. Wow, that's a, that's a very evocative example for, for, for me because I was a 14-year-old a boy who read The Lord of the Rings a, a number of times. But I think it was something like 16 and a half uh, or something. I don't know, the number keeps changing in my head. But that... You know, with a lot more opportunity than that boy, it sounds like. Oh, there, but there, but for the grace of God or whatever, go I. So you worked in that children's library for an, a number of years, I guess. Uh, a couple of years, and then <laughs> uh, career progress was exceptionally slow because the other thing about Camden, I, I honestly can't remember the number of staff who worked there, but it was hundreds, absolutely hundreds. When we had our Christmas party each year. It was an enormous event, you know, hundreds of staff would come to it and we were a very, very sociable group of people, most wonderful colleagues in in Camden. But the downside of that was it was very hard to get promotion because there were so many of us on our level, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of these graduate librarians. (laughs) So progress was extremely slow. So I worked at Kentish Town a couple of years, I think, and then I got sort of my first weenie break, which was a maternity leave cover for one of these posts that was assistant branch librarian stroke children's librarian. So I was still a children's librarian, but I was deputising for the branch librarian. So I went to Chalk Farm Library for, I think, the nine months of the maternity leave. And then when when that person came back, I moved to Regent's Park Library. Again, the same sort of post, but this time permanently. And I have to say, working at Regent's Park was probably the happiest couple of years that I've probably ever had in libraries. They were just idyllic. The area was tough, really, really tough. 
but the, the people I worked with was, was such fun to work with and we just had um, complete freedom to do whatever we wanted to do. I got very into reading feminist literature at that time, so I sort of took upon myself to kind of set up what was probably the first women's collection, or one of the, one of the few women's collections in the library. I did a really long book list of all the you know books that I thought ought to be in this collection, then replicated it in other, in other libraries. But what really struck me working in Regent Spark at that time is we had a very significant Bangladeshi community. And this was really the first time that I'd worked with a community that was quite an isolated community. Right. Very, very difficult to get either the children or particularly the mums into the library. The mums were very nervous of being seen on the estate. There was a great deal of racism on the estate. It was a it was predominantly what I'd describe as a white working class estate. Right. With this Bangladeshi community in its midst. The community had grown up around the restaurants of Drummond Street with the men coming over in the probably in the sixties to set up Bangladeshi restaurants that are really quite well known in Drummond Street. And then the wives coming over in the aftermath of the war in Bangladesh, and then obviously starting young families. So this was 1980 that I'm talking about, yeah. and it was quite new territory for us. And, and none of us really had any experience of working such a, a a community that we you know that we were unfamiliar with. And I realised that the only way I could really get the mums to come into the library was through a third party. So I approached, and I can't remember whether it was, I think it was probably somebody in health services because, I, but I, this is where I, my, my memory's a bit hazy now, but I know I've worked through, a, you know, another community service and we, we set up a sort of a, a kind of a mother and toddler group, but it was one where there was going to be other activities for the mums to come to. Right. And it was through the agency of an organisation with whom they were already more familiar. Yeah. And that worked. And we, we sort of had a, a kind of reasonably thriving mother and toddler group. It was still very hard going because there was, a, you know, there was absolutely no contact between the you know the, the majority community and the Bangladeshi community. Yeah, Regent's Park was a very peculiar place to work altogether because it bordered some of the richest areas in London. So I had families that were using the library from Chester Gate with names like Alexandra Oliver Imogen, <laughs> whose parents were you know, fantastically wealthy, yeah. and who you know the children went to private schools. And then, you know, we had sort of, most of our readers were sort of, you know, lavatory attendants and uh, <laughs> something a little further down the social scale. No, it's, it's a unique thing to and London, was, I think, that this, this mix of uh, very rich and very poor areas coming to the same but services. But very, very stark in Regent's Park, you can imagine. Yeah, I can. The, you know, the Regent's Park council estate. Wow. And the, um, you know, Chester Gate. So we had, we had uh, well, we just had a few, you know, we, it, it was just a very fun place to work really yeah amazing and and so you worked there for a couple of years a couple of years and then I had a spell back at Kentish Town Library where I came out of children's work for a while I went back there as the deputy branch librarian without children's activities this time and I 
I got into what was the a sort of a new area of work, uh, which was community information. We had a, a very far-sighted and innovative reference line, head of reference services, Steve Turret, who, with somebody called Nigel Graves, who went on to develop sort of one of the first community information services in the country. Again, this was really groundbreaking stuff in the 1980s. Mm. Uh, so we had a, a sort of a, a service which was known as Syndex, which sort of was a, an index of every single community activity that there was in the borough. And we started for the first time to provide information in a much more comprehensive way through things like leaflets and other kinds of ephemeral material. Mm -hmm. Obviously this was before electronic information became available. This was still paper information. So everything had to be classified and filed in a way that people could find this information. But it it was a very different kind of service. So for the first time, we were encouraging people to come into the library for information about how to live their lives. And we, in fact, the, the classification system that we used was that of the um, Citizens Advice Bureau, NACAB. Okay. So that was the, that was the way we, we yeah. classified the information and provided it. So for the first time, that sort of blurring distinction between what was advice and what was information was, was really becoming part yeah. of our, our service. And now libraries are information centres as well as libraries, Absolutely. and that's in the but actual... This, this was really the start of it in yeah. the 1980s, and it was wonderful you know it was a really exciting place to to be working and I was working back at Kentish Town Library and again you know for the first time I was working with social workers youth workers health workers all sorts of other agencies and this was really you know again quite quite groundbreaking this idea that libraries didn't work in a silo but that you could provide a much broader and more comprehensive service by working through the agents and I can remember you know getting involved in some quite edgy youth work you know working with young people that were coming into the library without any kind of prospects of getting employment you know maybe they had drug addictions and and working with youth workers and sort of saying what do I do for these kids what do I do where do I direct them where should Mm. I send them you know people who are coming in for you know women's refuge Things that were really, for the first time, my I was experiencing the sort of the heart, you know, the real edges of society, yeah. and knowing that I could I couldn't do that sort of stuff on my own, and and that this, you know, so that was that kind of borderline between providing information for people and and helping to direct them to to, to change their lives. Yeah. If you're enjoying getting better acquainted with me and with my guests. Maybe you'd like to help other people find out about the show. There's a few easy ways to do that. You can go on iTunes if you've got five minutes and leave a review saying what you think of it. That helps it get higher rankings on iTunes and stuff like that. What the show really needs is word of mouth. And in this internet age, that means liking the show's page on Facebook or retweeting it or sharing the link to all of your Facebook friends or Twitter followers doing whatever you need to do in whatever social networking site you use and if you don't use a social networking site well hey you can just tell your friends or email your friends and tell them about what's going on so we were just before I paused it we were talking about your first experience of the edges of society but I guess also of kind of a more interagency work practice yes that's right and you know the great thing about Camden was people were doing a lot of groundbreaking work it was a wonderful place 
to work as a young librarian. There were dozens of very talented people and it's no coincidence that many of my colleagues in Camden went on to become heads of service in other authorities. Mm. At one point, I can't tell you exactly the number, but maybe there were up to 10 of my ex-colleagues were were sort of heads of service in London. It really was that kind of environment where, you know, you were encouraged, being creative was part and parcel of what you did and, you know, it I really had no concept of being managed. I know this sounds kind of quite crazy, but yes, of course there was a branch librarian who was the manager of the branch, and of course there were heads of children's service, heads of reference service, and of course those people gave direction and provided the kind of the vision for the service. But we really didn't talk in those terms. I don't think I'd ever heard the word vision, or <laughs> I'd never heard words like targets you know we just did we just said hey wouldn't it be good if okay we'll do it you you just kind of did things yeah this sounds so amazing to me (laughs) it was and I I think that it, it was like that quite a few years anyway so in 1985 I decided that it was probably time for me to leave Camden as I said the only drawback of Camden was that promotion was dreadfully slow. Right. Uh, by that time I was a very active member of the youth libraries group and I'd started getting involved in the committee work and I'd started to I suppose in- increase my networks and knowing people in other authorities and I think I'd realised that it probably wasn't sensible to spend my entire career in Camden and I realised I was although I was very reluctant to leave Camden I would have to do so. Yeah. So I applied for a post that came up in Waltham Forest as a children's library organiser and that was the sort of the first post in what I would term middle management. And I got that post, which surprised me because I think it was the first job I'd applied for. Um, and left to go to Waltham Forest, which was an incredible culture shock for me. Right. Camden, uh, because it was just so very different. And the I realised that the outer London boroughs were very, very different from the inner mm-hmm. London boroughs. Yeah. For one thing, you just didn't get the same mix of staff. Most of the staff in Waltham Forest are people who'd, and I suspect this was true of most of the outer London boroughs, people who'd gone to school in that borough, grown up in that borough, gone to college in that borough, and then worked in the borough. Right. And there were very few people who were not from Waltham Forest. Right. Having said that, there were a few. Waltham Forest had quite a new deputy who was determined, I think, to break the mould of Waltham Forest and who had brought in staff of talent from other authorities. So when I got to Waltham Forest in 85, it was in a process of quite considerable change. And so there was an incredible tension between the new people coming in, of which I was obviously one, and the old guard. So most of the branch librarians and library assistants were old guard and the people in positions like the community information librarian, myself as children's library organiser, a couple of the branch librarians, a couple of the deputy branch librarians were people who'd come from other authorities and who were you know, determined to change things, were bringing in some very exciting new ideas. And in some ways I found Waltham Forest incredibly exciting because there was sort of quite a relatively small number of us you know we were driven it almost seemed down to us to get these changes through yeah there were kind of staff in Waltham Forest who'd, who'd 
genuinely never left the authority. <laughs> You'd almost never been out of Waltham Forest. Yeah. You know. I can believe. It. I mean, I live in I live in Leytonstone, so I, I live in Waltham Forest area, but not quite as far out as some of the places. Not Redbridge way, but uh, yeah. It was quite an interesting place to work for a year <laughs> or two, but it was great. Again, I could do lots of things. The deputy head of service had brought us in to make changes, so he supported us to the hilt. So anything we wanted to do, any idea we had, get on with it, do it, because he wanted change. Mm. Of course, we were young and trusting (laughs) (laughs) yes and we were up for that that was a couple of years of great excitement and uh, creativity and it was the first time that I'd actually probably had a a proper team of my own to manage there were two community children's librarians and the sort of the three of us was our responsibility to create opportunities for children to come into the library so obviously again we had to work through the branch libraries but we set up those opportunities, we set up new story times, the new under fives activities, the new multicultural activities, book weeks, all those kinds of things that we take for granted now. They were happening really for the first time in that, in that authority. And marketing the library in a different way. They were very far-sighted in the library service, had its own marketing officer, which I think was unusual then and is probably even unusual now but we had a a really excellent uh, marketing officer and we worked with him and his team to really start sharpening the way we presented libraries and marketed them to the to the community which was again quite different for those times we around the time when the library started being closed down by the yes. Tory government at the time? Yes, you're absolutely right. Margaret Thatcher had come in in 79. Up until 79, of course, we'd been in a period of complete freedom to do anything, expansion, open you know, six days a week, you know, money was no object. Yeah. And of course, you know, from 79 onwards, things started to change. change yeah. I left Camden in 84. Five. I remember the people in Camden calling me a you know a rat leaving a sinking ship. I think we just introduced Wednesday closing, which was pretty much universal then in most library authorities that libraries started to close one day a week, if not two days of the week. Mm. And yeah, from from the kind of mid eighties onwards, there was a definite feeling that things were closing down a bit. Right. Although there was this innovative work going on at the same yeah. time. Yeah, it seems like a very interesting decade for that reason, really, that there was all of these kind of radical programs going on in councils at the same time as there was a, you could say, an unradical government. Yes, absolutely. That's that's quite correct. And then I came to Enfield in. 1986, the first time I I came in as Principal Librarian for Children and Education Services, so for the first time I took on the responsibility for the school's library service, which I have to say I'd never, I didn't know anything about school's library services, (laughs) because we hadn't had one in Kansas. These are a very distinct service, I mean they're either a loan service of items to schools, Mm -hmm. to school libraries, or as they were in Enfield, it was a project loan service. But it was a service that is directly provided from the library service to, to schools. schools yeah. And originally paid for by education services. It was like commissioned okay, by education right. services. I had had no experience of schools library services in Camden because we were part of the London Education Authority and, and ILIA provided everything to you know ilia was the library service oh okay it was it was the library service for all the inner london authorities okay so they were linked up in that way do you remember ilia i no i mean 
No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Ilya was one of those. Uh, it's a bit like the you know the Greater London Council. Ilya is one of those um, organisations that everybody from the eighties knows. Ilya, I yeah. I was, it was I was, yeah. I was born in eighty one. <laughs> So, uh, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, Ilya was the authority that provided all library services, an incredible service. It was, um, you know, they, they loaned everything from books to costumes to videos. To, you can, I mean, you, you know, they had an amazing resource collection and employed hundreds, if not thousands of staff. And it was closed down in the eighties. Right. You know, that, that was, one that was of, what one, one of the, the things that Thatcher did. Of conservative government. Yeah. Thatcher's, Thatcher's years. Yes. So the inner London authorities had to take over schools, library services around about that time. The outer London authorities had always had their own schools, library services, but they were on a kind of minuscule scale mm. in by comparison. Okay. So when I came to Enfield, it was you know it was a a relatively small but still very appreciated service. So from kind of 86 to 93 I again I I kind of I think when I arrived with a youthful enthusiasm I, I sort of sat down and wrote something like a five-year plan for sort of changing children's services in Enfield because they struck me as being quite outdated you know I don't want to sort of criticise things that had gone before no but, but you were progressing them onwards from where they'd begun yeah they were very different from you know my experience yeah when I, I mean for example when I came there was hardly a library that had a class visit barely one you know if they did that it was considered amazing they, they did do some very unusual things they did do some very innovative things in some ways but They'd had a, a head of children's service who'd been there for 35 years. She very much developed the service in, you know, as she wanted. Yeah. And that kind of era of librarians were, were leaving London boroughs. Mm-hmm. You know, they were very much the... They, they were very much the people who'd set up children's services in the first place. You yeah. know, they, they were incredibly groundbreaking librarians of their time. But the kind of service they were providing in the 1980s were quite out of date. Well, and I mean, society had changed massively, and actually, outer London boroughs, the demographics were changing. Absolutely. And I mean, they have amazingly changed now. The yes. demographics of Enfield now is very different from, from when it would have been there. But of course, when I got there, that was really in progress, and there were many, many communities in Enfield. Obviously, the Cypriot community was a, a very well established yeah. community, but there were the African black communities of Edmonton were quite established yeah. but there were many new communities who were sort of coming yeah. coming to live in the borough it was clear that there was lots to do there were no under fives activities happening anywhere and there was an enormous fear and reluctance to get involved in that kind of work I can tell you that there wasn't I don't think any of the library I mean maybe one or two of the libraries even had carpeting you know the libraries look was so old-fashioned you know they were sort of like wooden floors wooden shelving they were really old-fashioned that kind of image that people have in their minds which makes them scared to go into libraries today which don't exist libraries like that don't really exist anymore but that was the case then Uh, absolutely so alongside trying to set up new services and new activities and bring in authors and set up and fives activities and all of that 
I was really trying to improve the look of the library and of course the stock of the library. Mm. I was just so excited because there was so much to do. Um, and obviously you start building up your own teams, you start appointing the staff that you want to appoint, you start bringing in people that you've worked with from other authorities yeah. and for the first time I could really influence that kind of thing. So it was very exciting. Well, I, lo- I love the way that your, your career seems to be kind of a series of exciting moments. I mean, I, I kind of envy those elements, those moments where you can have the freedom to do some stuff and yeah. you did it, you know. Well, Sounds I was great. always very lucky. I mean, I've had a career which has been entirely like that, I have to say. Things changed again in the 90s. <laughs> it kind of got worse before it got better. Um, <laughs> I went on maternity leave in 93, came back in 94, and an enormous change had taken place during that year. We were in the sort of last years of Conservative government. So John Major time, back to basics. The thing of the moment was the splitting of provider and commissioning. So what they were looking at is outsourcing services. Right. So quite advanced with things like leisure centres and leisure services where you had very clearly a, a sort of a commissioning service and then the service being provided by a private organisation. We were restructured into a client commissioning split in libraries and I was put into what was a, a very small commissioning team that was led by Claire Lewis and the the libraries at that time started to become known as the library network. Right with a library network manager. So the library network manager was responsible for, for providing the service and the idea was we would be re- responsible for writing a specification for the service we wanted and that would be the contract that we would then tender out. To private company? Well, you know, it never got that far. Yeah. I mean, it, that, you know, <laughs> that would have been the ultimate. That would have been the ultimate, But I mean, it started off, the, you know, the contract went obviously to, you know, the library network. So the library network manager was responsible for providing a service that the library development manager had specified. So I spent a kind of rather boring year doing something that I really loathed doing, which was writing specification of the service. It's kind of interesting in some ways to, to sit down and actually say what service you wanted. That in itself was something we'd really never done before. Mm. So it did sort of concentrate the mind. Yeah. Um, but it was, a bit, you know, it was a bit dry for me, I have yeah. to say. <laughs> And I'm kind of wondering whether this is going to be my role for the next few years. And then things started to change. I, I'm trying to remember where, which came first, the Labour Council in Enfield or the Labour government. But certainly by 97, obviously, Tony Blair came in. Yeah, and I remember that night very well. And after that, things changed hugely. As you know, the priority was education, education, education. And suddenly a great deal of money became available for services to improve education and more particularly to level the playing field, to bring the standards up, but also to to give children of lower social class a greater chance of achievement. And that was, you know, obviously a, a huge opportunity for anyone that was associated, any service that was associated with children. So suddenly there was a lot of money available, money through the National Lottery, specific funding streams, this sort of development unit, which was Claire Lewis and Muriel Hill and myself, was suddenly, our, our you know, work was transformed 
from the sort of the dull writing specification of the service to applying for funds and that is really what our jobs became. Applying for funding from external grants, setting up a service, mainstreaming that service and actually you know quite dramatically changing the service that we had. So a great number of services that you kind of associate with Enfield Libraries now got set up at, in those um, really in those sort of next five to ten years. I mean this is the thing that I find now I mean uh, so many people say to me nowadays the Labour government let everybody down and I, I don't I'm not saying it didn't um, and for for all of those years I was I was you know enraged that a, a lot of the behaviour of the Labour government but it's only when they've gone that you realise the good that they also did. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying they didn't move us further along the line of privatisation and things like that. They kind of did, but there was a different emphasis when they came in that I didn't really appreciate at the time because I was experiencing it through the media rather than like you were in the actual council. Well, there, all I can say was their heart was in the right place. I don't think they really... They did make mistakes, mm. and one of the things that I think we felt was a mistake was always to attach almost impossible targets yes. to achieve to the funding. So, you know, they'd adopted this kind of conservative mentality, which presumably was the mentality that had come from the States, which was that you didn't get money without strings attached. Yeah. You, you, know, you, you had to have targets to demonstrate that you'd achieved something with the money that you'd been given, mm -hmm. which was okay and was, you know, is, is a fair enough... It, it, you know, it seems a reasonable thing to 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 ask people to account for what they what do doing. with money, yeah. but practically, is very hard to do, and practically, it means that you focus so much more on gathering data and monitoring what you're doing, and that in itself that becomes the end in itself, and so much work, time, and people hours go into the collection of that data almost at the expense of what's being achieved. Mm. And if I have got a criticism of the Labour government, it was that they embraced that mentality with such enthusiasm. Yeah, they, they did that, yeah. And the targets and the monitoring that came in with Sure Start were just horrendous. We had to have armies of staff to collect the data, mm. which was just crazy. And, you know, unfortunately, you, you ended up spending more of your time, vast hours of time, just analysing the numbers of children who were doing something, which was out of all proportion to what you were doing. It's a strange thing as well, because it's some things you can't quantify as well. I, I did a, a theatre and education project when I was at university where we went into primary schools to do theatre work and a lot of the literature that we were reading suggested that the kind of the primary goal of theatre and education should be to change the children's understanding of the world how do you quantify that that became what the project was about really and our final presentation was you can't quantify a change in understanding you can just hope to achieve it yes. and I, I think that's very appropriate to what I do now mm. I, I of course I I gather the statistics and I and I'm and I'm it's very important for my job now to to hit those targets but ultimately we can't we can't quantify the change in understanding that we give to those children yeah. you can't quantify that's that. absolutely right
But, you know, during those years, between Muriel and I, we set up things like, well, I, and I'm going to name all of them, whether they were things that Muriel initiated or, or I initiated, but um, things that, you know, Enfield Libraries became well known for, like Roll On Reading, which mm. was a service that helped children from black and minority ethnic communities to access library services, open learning services, homework centres and study support, Sure Start services, many new resources and services for both children and adults with disabilities, <laughs> and many, many more. Partnerships, really strange project which was about sort of improving children's creativity, after school activities, extended school activities, Obviously, children's centres, a really long list. I have to say those those years were, you know, again, very, you know, I'm sorry to say again, exciting, but they, but they were. But it's we great. Were, we, it's because we were constantly doing something that was new and different and had a lot of freedom to, and of course they weren't all, they, they were far from original, you know, we, we weren't you know, making them up ourselves, you know. I mean, obviously I went out, I mean, Southwark, to be fair, was one of the first authorities to set up homework centres. I haven't, I didn't, I didn't make that one up. Yeah. But I kind of went along at an early stage, saw how theirs were working, talked to their staff, their kind of development unit, thought we can do that, brought it back to Enfield, looked for the opportunity to see where I could get the money from. In fact, we started the homework centres with a tiny grant of about £600, <laughs> from um, the Prince's Trust um, and with that you know tiny or maybe it was a thousand pounds with that tiny grant we levered in more money from the Enfield Business Partnership set up the first homework centre in uh, Ponders End Library monitored it said how many children were coming to it said what sorts of things had been achieved for these children as a result of coming and used that as an opportunity to put in for much, much larger sum of money from the Opportunities Fund, which was just setting up. And then we put in a bid because we were starting to get actually new money in the local authority. We went through a period, a very short period, where we had both a Labour government and a Labour council <laughs> who were working in line with each other. Yeah, they kind of agreed. Yes. We actually had an opportunity for about three years for what were called service improvement bids, where you could actually get new money. And that was, you know, that was quite unusual. But we took advantage of that and we set up a whole lot of services with local government money at that time. And obviously they were mainstream services because once that money was was mainstream money, it meant it wasn't a time limited grant. Yeah. It was it was money for it was revenue for, you know, forever. Well, until the cuts finally came, of course. So, I mean, that sort of really covers your career. And yes. as, as I suspected, it ate up a lot of the kind of conversation. I guess sort of before I close things up, I'd just like to touch on a couple of other aspects of, of you and who you are. And so you spent a long time married before you decided to have children, even though you were working in the children's services all yes. that time. Yeah, I think partly I just was, you know, busy. Yeah. I just was having a you know, I was having a good time. I really enjoyed my job. Probably because I got the post I did in nineteen eighty six in Enfield. I was thirty then. I, I probably felt I really wanted to give, you know, a good few years to it. 
I mean, it, it wasn't unheard of for people to job share. I mean, that was, job sharing was just coming in, sort of like late 70s, early 80s. The first kind of opportunities for job sharing were coming in and people were starting to go on maternity leave and come back yeah. and carry on working, which before that really wasn't the No, case. no, absolutely. So I knew I could, you know, I could, if I wanted to have children, I, I could come back and either job share or it would be possible. But I, I didn't have any family in London. I still don't have any any family in London. I'm from Wales and my family will live in Wales. And it just always seemed to be, you know, it would be very hard to have children trying to work. And I, I kind of didn't want to give up work. I really enjoyed my work. So it just was something that was easy to put off doing. Yeah. And I guess that's why. <laughs> well, I think it's, I mean, there's nothing wrong with having children. Late. I mean, my, my, my mum had my little sister and she was, I think, 40 or something. So it <laughs> seems a reasonable decision to me. And so you had a, a long period of time kind of enjoying being married as well, I guess. Yes, that's right. We did a lot of travelling and, and I had a, a hobby that also took up a lot of my time, which was dancing. From 1982 onwards, I belonged to an Israeli performing dance group called Oranim, which was a, a fabulous experience, you know, really wonderful. We were a group of, oh, I don't know, it varied from anything from sort of 10 to 20 people, men and women. So we rehearsed every week. We performed probably on average about once a month. And we, yeah, we did some pretty pretty exciting shows in, that, in, those, in those years. I suppose we, we would perform whenever they wanted some kind of Jewish-themed... <laughs> <laughs> dance group so we we did things at uh, the short theatre that a thing that was called from one night only where at, like amateur dance groups would would perform we performed at the queen elizabeth hall we performed at the royal festival hall we performed to lots and lots and lots of multicultural dance festivals around london and the southeast so yeah it was a, it was and a it was is it so it's tradition <laughs> traditional dance or is it adapted to traditional dance? Adapted, or? yeah, adapted traditional dance. So in our repertoire, we would have had a range of styles representing many of the kind of cultures and countries that Jews have lived in yeah. before they came to Israel. So we had like a Hasidic dance, a Hasidic wedding dance that we did. Um, we had my favourite, the, the Yemenite dancing, which came from the Yemen, not surprisingly, <laughs> uh, which is very, very, very sort of traditional dancing. There's Arabic debkas um, and you know Russian and Polish Eastern European style dances. So it's a very it's a very wide range. Yeah of course of, because um, Jews have been spread across across the world and so I guess that's great that you've got all of those different that's right. repositories of uh, yeah. dance so, culture. You know, the, co- the costumes reflected the, the dance style so we had lo- you know, lots of different costumes. It was very, it's a very, you know, it's kind of like a quite vibrant and dance group. Did you always dance or did you sort of discover? Yeah I've always danced. I, I've kind of, well I mean I started doing ballet when I was five. I started doing Israeli dancing from the age of about eight onwards. It was very much part of sort of growing up in a, in a small Jewish community yeah. in Swansea. We had a, a youth group that I belonged to and dancing and singing was part of that. And then when I came to London I kind of went to some of the classes in London, carried on dancing and then joined the, this um, Oranium dance group. Danced with it till, oh, till sort of late 30s when I kind of decided it was probably time to, to hang up my dance shoes and not, not perform anymore because the, the group was obviously, you know, younger members were coming into the group. I carried on going to classes throughout, you know, I had my children, carried on going to Israeli dance classes. And then five, six years ago, somebody had the idea of the 
old group reforming. <laughs> Getting so, the band back together. Indeed. So we've reformed and now we're dancing again. Well, so that's great. Now, so we're now, we've renamed ourselves, we're now the Alanine Dance Group and we're same exactly the same group of people without the guys none of the guys have come back none of them okay so it's all women now well i think that's great i mean some of the best some of the most kind of powerful dance i've seen in my life has been not necessarily done by young people i mean i think sometimes there's a different kind of movement that comes with age just as there are different kinds of thinking that comes with age and actually uh, i've been very inspired by that i mean um i I did dance for a year at oh, university. Really? Yeah. Um, no, it's kind of. I stopped doing it after that so year. What sort of dance do you do? Um, I did contemporary experimental dance wow. uh, as part of my theatre degree, which was a year of dance. Generally, the release technique. You probably don't necessarily know about this. Generally, it's about knowing how your body moves and sort of releasing tension from different places. So yeah. being very aware of how your body is moving people who'd done ballet before found it quite difficult Mm. to change their way of thinking but I had had no dance experience and so uh, went into it fresh didn't I wasn't necessarily a great dancer but I did uh, learn some stuff I'm certainly more more aware of my movement although I'm still incredibly clumsy but I no I I am (laughs) that's true but then I, I I sort of stopped doing I stopped doing it after that year and I did some physical theatre and I had a kind of moment when I had a six pack and all that stuff and then uh, stopped now and then all the muscle became flab uh, but but no I mean so I, I but I, I have a passion for dance dance was the only was the the stuff that inspired me at university that I saw on stage was all dance I'd gone there with a, a love of scripts my course had no love of scripts and so I found dance kind of the thing that inspired me there and I still in fact I'm going to see DVA at the National Theatre next week because uh, DVA it's a physical theatre kind of group and I'm excited to be going to see them. Now I do well apart from the Israeli dancing and Zumba (laughs) I also do salsa. Um, I did salsa for a bit. Salsa's wonderful Um, and I, I, I I just love dance. I love watching any kind of dancing. I mean, almost all my excursions out to the theatre to see to see dance. Mm. I love contemporary dance, I love ballet, tango, flamenco. I mean, I, there are so many different you know styles of dance that I would love to to try. I really want. To, I mean, one of my ambitions is to try flamenco because I think it's a just oh yeah, fabulous. It's great dance. Yeah, there's one thing that I I really you know love it's it's dance wow i have such admiration for dancers having done it for a year i i know i couldn't do it i mean it's physically such a grueling thing it is yeah so the last question that i ask people is just do you have anything to plug which is a strange one uh people often get a bit surprised by it (laughs) (laughs) you can take it in any way sometimes people kind of i don't know say things about like charities or like their opinion about life or all sorts of things. In fact, just last night I was doing a conversation where someone plugged their local library, uh, <laughs> which surprised me, and uh, I was pleased about it, but I was surprised. Um, I can't think of anything that I particularly want to plug. I think at the moment, over the next you know year or so, I think I'll probably find something that I that I do want to get involved with. I think now, you know, now is the time. I've got more time to think about things that I do want to get involved with. I mean, I feel very, I feel very concerned. I'm very upset and very worried about 
the kind of society that we're, you know, we're going to be handing over to the, the future to, to, you know, to, to our kids. Yeah. I feel very concerned about youth unemployment. I feel very concerned about, you know, how hard it is for kids to to get either jobs or educational opportunities now that things like tuition fees are up to nine thousand a year. I feel appalled by the kind of level of debt that we're going to be saddling young people with. Yes. I feel incredibly worried about the changes that are coming to the NHS. I feel very worried and concerned. So I think that, you know, if there's, if there's anything that I probably would, would be more likely to get involved with it, you know, in the future, it might be political change. Well, hear, hear from me on that one. Um, and then, and finally, the last thing I say is, would you like to say goodbye to the audience? Thank you, David, for the opportunity of uh, you know, allowing me to speak. And uh, yes, thank you and goodbye. It's been my pleasure. Goodbye. <laughs> you can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at UBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook. It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website, www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app that you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.